Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to be in Exodus 28, 29 and 30 this afternoon. If you haven't got one of our Exodus books as well, Alan can grab you one of those from the back table. Um, our last of our three books. If you just turned up for today, you've missed the first two, so you haven't quite got a complete collection, but I'm sure they'll go on eBay at some point for a ridiculously <laughs> expensive price, and you can buy one there. Um, a few years ago, when I was still working in my, my old job, a, a job came up, and it was a bit of a sideways move, to work with our nuclear regulatory department within the Environment Agency, and the job looked pretty interesting and I was interested in it. it looked like a bit of travel travel to Japan travel to uh, Chernobyl trying to help develop some of the new nuclear facilities that we're building in the UK and it looked like one of those jobs that had a bit of an, an element of danger in it but that's kind of how I like to live a little bit of life on the edge so I inquired I had a friend who worked in that department and I asked him what it was like to work for uh, that department nuclear regulation and uh, before too long as he's describing what the job involves I quickly found that it wasn't a job for me he told me even before you get into to doing the job there's a long list of checks that you have to go through so you have a background check just to make sure that you're not a terrorist your family have background checks to make sure they're not terrorists because you're involved in the design of these new facilities and if if that got into the wrong hands, then we know what could happen. So there's, there's checks there, and then you have to sign the Official Secrets Act. There's all sorts of health and medical checks, and then you're going into these dangerous facilities in different countries and potentially in our country. And then if you even get the job, then it's long hours, and sometimes you're away from home for, for a long time. The risk with the job is obvious. Like you're in close proximity to dangerous things. You have to have health checks every few months, checking radiation levels in your body to make sure you're not getting too much exposure. And it just sounded incredibly dangerous, but then also incredibly exhausted. Days and days away from home. Lots and lots of hard work. Danger and exhaustion. And they are the two things that we see all over the role of the people that we're going to read about this afternoon. Last week, we looked at the tabernacle. We saw this kind of show home. Remember this, this picture of, of what the eternal home of God's people was going to look like. And the tabernacle, we saw just elements of our first home in Eden. It took us back to the beauty and the glory that we saw in Eden. Then it took the eyes of God's people all the way forward to our eternal home in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. And it had just glimpses of what that was going to be like. The rest, the security, the peace, the comfort that we will enjoy as God's people in the new heavens and the new earth. We saw that God gave the tabernacle as a gift to his people so that they could have a sense of the home that was to come. But also that they could sense just something of his presence in the here and now. God literally came and dwelt in that tent. He came down and he tabernacled in the tent he was there present in the holy of holies and so God gave them a means of coming into his presence the priests were those who represented God to the people and represented the people to God and they were able to go into the tabernacle where the presence of God was and experience something of the beauty of God's presence on behalf of the people and on behalf of the people they were able to to make atonement for their sins through the sacrificial system, they were able to, to bring about forgiveness for the sins of the people. And as we come to chapters 28, 29, 30, we get to understand a little bit of how the tabernacle works a bit, in a bit more detail. What the role of the priests 
was back then in a little bit more detail. And what I like to call these three chapters, this isn't in the Bible at all, I've just made this up, but but you'll see why. These three chapters, 28, 29, 30, are what I like to call the chapters of exhaustion. What we will see in these three chapters is what a life of trying to deal with your sin and the brokenness of the world looks like without the finished work of the cross. And it's exhausting and it's dangerous. Before we get any further, let me pray. Father, thank you again for the truths that we've sung this afternoon. Thank you for the great reminder of your sovereignty over all creation for putting the very breath in our bodies so that we can praise you. Use that breath in these next few moments for your glory through my mouth, through the meditations of our hearts and our minds and how we will dedicate our lives and even just this week to walk in in obedience to your word. Father, we thank you for these words. These aren't just words to us. We know that they are living, they are active, they are sharper than any two-edged sword and so we pray that by your spirit you would come and change us, transform us, make us, more into the likeness of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's the first thing that we see. These are going to be out of order, I think, Harris. See if you can, see if you can work with me and find out where we're going to be. The first thing that we see in this passage is that trying to deal with your sin without Jesus is dangerous. Trying to deal with your sin without Jesus is dangerous. We've seen this thread all the way through the book of Exodus, that God desires to dwell with his people, right? We've seen that week after week. God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with them. That's why he gives them the tabernacle. He gives them instructions to build this, this movable tent. They can take his presence with them as they go. And then he gives instructions here in these three chapters for the priests. And these priests were, were men from the, the, the Levite tribes. You remember the 12 tribes, God's people Israel split into to 12 tribes. And the Levites were one of the tribes and it was their role to be God's priests. They were to represent God to the people and the people to God. They were going to deal with the sin of God's people. And then once their sin was dealt with, they could come into the presence of God on behalf of the people and enjoy his presence. But they couldn't just walk in there. The priests couldn't just wake up one morning and walk into the tabernacle. We've seen this all the way through Exodus as well, that guilty sinners cannot commune with a holy God. And so the priest can't just wake up one morning and think, okay, off to work, put on his cloak, and away he goes into the tabernacle. That, it doesn't work like that. And so before the sins of God's people were dealt with, before the people of God could have forgiveness for their sins and have all of the guilt and shame that goes with it removed, the priest had to prepare himself. There was a ritual of dressing, a ritual of cleansing, a ritual of making sacrifice. And so first in chapter 28, we see the ritual of of the dressing that they had to undergo before forgiveness of God's people could be brought about. And there's just lots of different garments that the priest had to wear. And we're just going to go through them all briefly this afternoon. The first one in chapter 28, verse 6, is the ephod. We read this in uh, in, uh, verse 6. Make the ephod of gold. This is instructions from God to his people. Make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. So the the ephod was a a bit like if you think of uh, uh, footballers who are on the training pitch and they wear a bib. 
you see where I'm, where I'm going, like a, a kind of bib on the front and the back. That's where the ephod was. And they were to wear this ephod, and, and it was a bit more elaborate than Umbro or whoever it is that you're wearing. This was spectacular. It was gold. It had lovely trim all over it. And it had uh, two stones uh, uh, sewn into the ephod. And on these two stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of God's people were inscribed onto these two stones. So you had the ephod, and then in verse 15, you had a breastplate. God says, make a breastplate of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, scarlet yarns, and fine, I keep on to say twin, but it's twine, fine, twined linen, you shall make it. So you've got the ephod, and then you've got the breastplate. This was, as you would imagine, it was a, something that kind of covered the front of the priest that went over the ephod. And the breastplate had 12 beautiful gems, some, some uh, crystals sewn into the breastplate. Uh, and you'll see why if you look down at verse 29. God says this, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. So that when he goes into the holy place, this is the, the inner room within the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. When he goes in there, he will bring them, bring the people of God to the regular remembrance before the Lord. These jewels were, were to represent God's people and represent God's people coming into the presence of him. So you had the ephod and then you had the breastplate. And then in verse 33, on top of those two things, you had a robe. And this robe was, was uh, sewn in with some, some beautiful pictures. If you look in verse 33, you'll see on the hem of the robe, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around a ten. Now, most of us have never eaten a pomegranate. We don't eat fine food like that. Maybe some of you on Lark Lane have enjoyed the delicacies of pomegranates. But pomegranates were, were a picture of Eden. When, when God's people heard about the pomegranates, their mind went back to Eden. It was a, a paradise fruit. It is a lovely, lovely fruit, isn't it? It's kind of juicy and just looks like tiny little gems inside and would have taken their minds and their hearts back to the Garden of Eden, would have reminded them of the beauty of God's presence. And so you have this, this ephod, the breastplate, the robe, which is, is sewn with pomegranates. And then in verse 35, at the bottom of the robe, you have bells sewn onto the robe. And you see in, in verse uh, 35 exactly why. Uh, so that when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, he has these bells on so he doesn't die. And, and the point was this. When the, when the priest went into the presence of God, you'd hear him. Like it's hard to, to have a robe with bells that you, you can't hear. Someone's ringing some bells over there and we can hear them. The point was the priest would go into the tabernacle and everyone would know it was the priest who was in there. Not anyone else, but the priest, the one who was, who was uh, made holy, the one who was able to go in was the one who was in there. It wasn't a reminder for God who was in there. It was a reminder for God's people, an audible reminder that guilty sinners cannot commune in the presence of a holy God. And so only the priest would go in and we'd know it was him because of the bells. And then after the bells on the robe, we have the turban. In verse 36, uh, we read this, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of the Lord consecrate as their holy gifts. So again, none of us wear a turban, do we? 
No, none of us do wear a turban. But if you've seen one, um, I've, I've got to go there. Harry Potter, Quirrell, that's a turban. It's kind of like a linen cloth that you wrap around your head. And on the front of the cloth was a plate that said, holy to the Lord. It was a sign that, that, that showed the sacrifice that the priest was bringing in had been made holy. It was okay to go in there. The priest was holy. He was okay to go in. And the sacrifice was okay to go in. The priest had to be perfect and anything he took had to be perfect. So you have the ephod, the breastplate, the robe, the bells, the turban. And then in verse 39 to 41, you get the tunic, the sash, the cap. And you read the description of all these things. They look beautiful. And the point is that when you saw the priest, you knew that he was different. He looked different to anyone else. Like he would stand out. These garments were adorned with gold and, and, and fine twined linen, different kind of beautiful threads. They looked different. They stood out. Verse 43, save the best till last, his underwear. They shall be on Aaron, God says, and on his sons when they come into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. Now, why does he leave the underwear to last? This is the last garment that he talks about. We all know, or hopefully we know, that we put our underwear on first. But he leaves the underwear to last. This is another warning. You see it said here again, he wears this underwear lest the priest bear guilt and die. The point here is nudity brings shame. It shouldn't do, but it does. Again, the hearts and minds of God's people will be taken back to Eden. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, God's people, Adam and Eve, were naked and they were unashamed. But this side of the fall, nakedness brings shame. And every part of the body of the priest had to be covered and had to be concealed. And if it wasn't, the penalty was death. If it wasn't concealed, holiness of God would consume the priest. See, the priest was a a role of honour. It was an honourable thing to be a Levite priest, but it was also an incredibly dangerous role. So you think of my friend who works in the new nuclear power plants. He can't just wake up one morning and throw on a suit and walk into work. Like he'll frazzle up and die. The holy presence of God is infinitely more powerful than, than a nuclear reactor. The role of the priest was dangerous. He was entering into the very presence of God. And so he had to make sure that everything was in its right place. Everything was covered. Everything was clean. Can you imagine having that responsibility on your shoulders? Imagine kind of going into the tabernacle, knowing that the, there could be no blemish on any part of your garment. No bit of dirt, no bit of, bit of muck. Everything had to be in its right place. You had to put your clothes on in the right order. No underwear first. Like you had to put it all on in the right sequence. Everything had to be in its right place. And if it wasn't, the penalty was death for you. But here's the crazy thing, and if you've been around Liberty for some time, you know that we remind ourselves of this every Sunday. Here's the crazy thing. When we think of the fear of the priest as he goes into the presence of God, here's the crazy thing. We have all come into the presence of God this afternoon with no fear. In fact, quite the opposite. And here's my hope. You've come into the presence of God as his people have gathered together with joy in your hearts, not with any fear at all. God is here by his Spirit dwelling in his people and I'm not your priest I've not brought you in here 
I'm not wearing an ephod. I'm not wearing the breastplate. I'm not wearing the, the, the ornate robe with pomegranates and bells. I'm not wearing the turban, the tunic, the sash. I am wearing underwear, just to be clear. But I've just walked in here with little care of how I look and absolutely no fear. How is that possible? Because of the cross. The cross changes everything. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus and Jesus came and lived perfectly amongst us. And the death that Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of his people. All of them. Every single one. For every single one of God's people. All of our sins were paid for in full in Jesus' death on the cross. And in exchange for for our sins, we received Jesus' perfect record. We received his holiness. And Jesus' resurrection secured for us the promise of God of eternal rest, eternal peace, eternal flourishing. All of the things that we all desire deep down in our souls. The resurrection of Jesus secured those for God's people. And Jesus' ascension as he rose and ascended to be with his father. As he ascended, he brought us into the presence of God. We are united to God through Christ Jesus. And so where Jesus is, we are. We are present with God and he is present with us. And this is what's crazy. There's no danger. It's not dangerous for us to be in the presence of God as we are found in Christ Jesus. It's not dangerous for God's presence to be found in us in the presence of his Holy Spirit. But that is only true for us because of the finished work of the cross. And you might be thinking this afternoon, well, I don't need to deal with my sin. It's not that, it's not that deadly. It's not that heavy. It's not that important. Well, it is. And you do need to deal with it. Because the only place that you can find the peace, the rest, the comfort, the security that you desire, that we all desire, the only place that you can find it is in God. And you can try and live a good life and you can try and avoid sin and you can try and do good things and you can try and please God that way. But how will you ever know that you've done enough good? Every single one of us, every single one of us will stand before God in judgment one day. And how do you know if the good that you've done now outweighs the bad that you've done? After this life, we will all stand before Jesus. And unless our record is perfect, we will be sent out of the presence of God to suffer for our sins for eternity. Folks, trying to deal with your sin without the finished work of the cross is dangerous. But not just that, it's exhausting. It's the second thing we see in these chapters. Trying to deal with your sin without Jesus is exhausting. See, it wasn't just about wearing the right clothes for the priest. He had to be made clean and he had to be made holy. And so in Exodus chapter 9, God gives Moses instructions for what that would look like. What it looks like for the priests to be, to be consecrated. You'll see that's the, the, the title of the chapter there. The consecration of the priests. Consecration just means to be made holy. To be set apart. And so you look down at verse four, this is how it came about. God says, bring Aaron and all the priests that will come after him, bring them to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So they were to be, they were to be cleaned. And then in verse seven, take the anointing oil and pour it on the priest's head and anoint him. 
So imagine uh, being in the desert. Some of you guys who are out doing the table in the park this afternoon will resonate with this. Imagine all of the dust in the desert whipping up and kind of just covering you in dust. These guys had a big time this afternoon, didn't you? It's dusty out there. Well, imagine that, we're in the desert. Like it's, it's a dirty place to live. Like everyone would be covered in dirt and muck and dust. And so they would take water and they would clean the priests, wash them clean. And then the oil that was placed on them, the anointing oil was symbolic of God's favor on the priest. And then after the washing and after the anointing, then sacrifices were made in verses 10 all the way down to verse 28. We see uh, what this sacrifice would look like if this was just for the priests. So Aaron and his sons would lay their hands on a bull and two rams and they would be sacrificed and they would symbolically transfer their sins as the priest onto the, onto the, uh, onto the bull, onto the two rams and the, the animals would bear the penalty of death for them. That is the penalty for our sin, death. And so these animals would die in their place. And then look down at verse 20, verse 21. Once these animals had been killed, they were to take part of its blood, put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet. It depends what kind of feet you've got, depending on which one that is. Speak to Elizabeth afterwards for more information. Uh, Put it on the toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. So here's what's happening. They would sacrifice the bull. They would sacrifice uh, the two rams. They would take a bit of the blood and they would dab a bit on the right ear, a bit on the right thumb, a bit on the right toe. Now, really, what they should have done is immersed their whole body in the blood of the sacrifice. Because it was the blood of the sacrifice that symbolized their cleansing from sin. But that would just be difficult, wouldn't it? Walking into the temple, dripping with blood. And so they, they symbolically went, God said, okay, here's, here's an easier way to do it. Go for the extremities, the ear, the, the thumb, the toe. But the point is the same. The blood of the sacrifice covered them completely. And at that point and only that point where they consecrated At that point and only that point were they made holy. And then they could start their work. And verses 39 to 41 describe what their regular work was. This is what they would do every day. Look at verse 39. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth sayer of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with a, a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. That bread sounds amazing, doesn't it? But I have no clue what those measurements are. You can probably find out in the back of your Bible if you want to make some of that. Nice bread, but here's the point. Everything was precise. Everything was measured. Everything was exact. They were to sacrifice a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. There was bread in the morning. There was a pleasing aroma in the evening. Same time in the morning, same time in the evening. Every day, day after day after day. And the lamb had to be perfect. The bread had to be measured. It had to be done at precise times every day. And then you look in chapter 30 and you see more details of what was needed for how to make these priests holy, how to keep the tabernacle clean. And then you look in the book of Leviticus and there you see even more details of what sacrifices were needed and who needed to make those sacrifices and how often they were to make those sacrifices and when to make those sacrifices and what to sacrifice and how to prepare them and who could sacrifice. And the list goes on and on. It was exhausting. And just think of the priests. Like they looked good, but those garments were heavy. Gold and heavy linen. 
precious stones and gems. And they had to be spotless. No dirt, no dust, no sweat. Like we think it's been hot this week. Try wearing all those robes in Egypt. In a tent. It's hard work. It would have been exhausting. And that's the point. See folks, sin isn't something that we can just brush off and decide not to do. Sin is ingrained into our souls, into our nature. It opens a door for chaos and destruction to reign in our lives. And there is no closing that door in our own strength. But we still try. We still try and deal with our sin and our own strength. We still push Jesus to one side and the finished work of the cross to one side and try and deal with sin in our own strength. And it is exhausting. We've made a new friend, a lady who is um, a Reiki master um, into all sorts of new age spirituality. And she was telling me this week of the, the procedures she has to go through. She has her friends come in and they... They come in with their negative energy and an evil spirit and she, she goes through this cleansing ritual with them to try and dispel these evil spirits and she does all of these different things and they do feel better when they go out but then they come back again next week and the piece that they've been trying to grab hold of has fallen through their fingers and so they come back for more help and the girl that we've made friends with, she's exhausted from it as well, not just helping her friends but, but the piece that she is longing for, it's slipping through her fingers as well. We've got another friend who's an addict who in exactly the same way is trying in his own strength to defeat sin. He's struggling with addiction and he's slipped into addiction again this week. And he's insistent that he's strong enough to deal with this on his own. He doesn't need Jesus. He doesn't need God's people. He can defeat this sin on his own. And month after month, as he falls into addiction again, he realizes he's just not strong enough. I have a friend who lives an ordinary life, works a good job, and loves to look the part. Changes his car every couple of years, puts his money into the house. The kids wear all the right clothes. And it is exhausting. Trying to keep hold of peace, trying to keep hold of comfort. And every time it falls through his fingers. And so he has to spend more money and buy another new car, and buy more clothes for his kids. Because the peace, the rest, the comfort that all of our friends that I've just described crave, it disappears as quickly as they found it through their fingers. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not into new age spirituality. I'm not an addict. I use my money wisely. Don't fool yourself. We all do the same. We all try and manage our sin in our own strength. We all try and take hold of peace in our own strength. See, for us, it might be just creating that comfortable life with more stuff. It might be building that nicer home. It might be trying to do more good, being a nice person. Folks, as Christians, we do this as well. We fall into the trap of thinking reading our Bible will make God more pleased with us. Or coming to church will make us more holy. Or we try and control our sin by just avoiding it or controlling it or running away from it. Friends, we are no match for sin. And we are never going to be strong enough in and of ourselves to bring ourselves the peace, the
the rest, the comfort and the security that we so crave. Trying to deal with your sin without Jesus, folks, is exhausting. But we live this side of the cross. The writer of the book of Hebrews, and you could turn with me there if you can. It'll be on the screen maybe if, um, if you can find it, Karis. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is reflecting on the, the, the priestly work, on the danger and the exhaustion that the priests in the tabernacle would endure. He's reflecting on, on the priests and implication, by implication for us, he's reflecting on, on us as God's people. The danger and the potential exhaustion for us of trying to deal with our sins without Jesus. And what he says in these verses, in Hebrews 10, verse 11 and 18, what he says is a balm to our weary souls and is rest for our souls. The very rest that we heard about that Jesus is so eager to give us that Ryan read to us earlier on. These verses remind us and place us into that place of rest as we realize what is ours in Christ. Let me just read these realities to us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Thinking back to the tabernacle and the priest that we just heard of, the writer says this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now think back to the priest. Think of all that he had to do to secure forgiveness for God's people. There's the ephod, he puts it on. And then there's the breastplate. And then there's the robe with the pomegranates woven in and the robe with the, with the bells at the bottom. And then there's the tunic. And then there's the sash, then there's the turban, then there's the cap. And then there's the underwear. And then they, before all putting that on, they need to be washed. They come to the entrance of the temple, they're washed clean. And then there's the oil that they, they are anointed with. And then there's the bull that they sacrifice. And then there's the ram that they sacrifice. And then there's the other ram that they sacrifice. And then there's the blood that they take and they put on the ears. And then the blood that they take and they put on the thumbs. And the blood that they take and they put on the toes. And then there's the blood that they pour onto the altar. And then the next day they can go in and do their duty. They take a lamb in the morning. They sacrifice it. They, they make the bread. They uh, put that down on the altar. And then in the evening, as the sun sets, they bring the next lamb, they sacrifice that lamb, and then they make a fragrant offering to the Lord. And then the next day, they take another lamb, and in the evening, another lamb. And then it keeps on going and keeps on going, and then, and then, and then. But what did we read in Hebrews chapter 10? The finished work of the cross is finished. There is no and then after the cross. What did Jesus say as he hung and suffered and bled and died for our sins? It is finished 
Brothers and sisters, there is no and then with the cross when it comes to our sin. Once and for all, he said. And where is th- there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now as we close, let me apply this to our lives. What is, what's it going to look like for us as God's people to live this out this week? What does it look like for the reality of Jesus' death on the cross once and for all? What does that look like for us as God's people? Well, firstly, we need to see that Jesus' death on a cross was once and for all. And if that is true, if he has died for your sin, all of it, past, present and future, then that means that you can stop running, you can stop trying harder, you can stop trying to work God's favour, you can stop trying to think that you are enough, you can just come to Jesus See that he's dealt with your sin once and for all. And here's the first thing that I want us to take away. You can rest. It's done. We don't need to do more better. Our sins have been paid for and the work of the cross is finished. Jesus is alive. And he's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death. And what's he doing right now? What did the writer of the Hebrews say? Where is he? What's he doing? He sat down. He's not frantically running around trying to think how he's going to sort out our sins this week. No, he sat down because the work is finished. He has sat down in a position of rest. And so can we. So brothers and sisters, what might that look like for you this week? To stop trying to muster up peace and rest and comfort in your own effort, in your own effort, but instead to come to Jesus, to see the cross is empty, the tomb is empty, and Jesus is sat down in a place of rest at the right hand of the Father. You know that quote that we read in Hebrews 10, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The writer of the Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah is writing that looking forward to the promise of the coming Messiah. He hadn't seen it. How he must have longed for the truth of that promise to be his reality in that day. That God would remember his sins no more. Not that he forgets them, but that he chooses not to bring them into his remembrance. How the prophets, prophets must have longed for that day. Well, they could come into the presence of God with no fear. Because their sins have been paid for, every single one. That is your reality. So rest. Here's the second thing I want us to take away. Jesus' death on a cross was once and for all. And Jesus' death on a cross has made his people holy. See, in verse 14 of... Of Hebrews, we see the finished work of the cross perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A few big words in there. I'll help us out. Sanctified means he made us holy. What he's saying is we are simultaneously holy. He says that we've been perfected for all time, God's people, and we're being made holy. Okay, it's difficult, but it's true. In the presence of God now, as Christ is present and we are found in him and Christ is holy, he is perfect, we are holy. That is who we are. We are holy, but we are also being made holy. Let me give us two implications in light of that reality as we finish. 
Jesus' death on the cross has made us holy, then firstly, that means that God delights in us. It means that when he sees us, he sees perfection. Now, all of us, in our minds, we're thinking the same thing. That's not right, because I know I'm not perfect. And that's true in one sense, because we aren't. When the father sees his son, he sees us in his son. And he is perfect. Finished work of the cross unites us to Jesus. And so everything that Jesus is in his humanity, we are. And Jesus is perfect. And so are we. And the father looks at the son and he says, in you I'm well pleased. And because we're in his son, he looks at us and he says, and you are well pleased. Father delights in his son. How could he not? And because we're found in his son, he delights in us. There is an aspect of this truth that God delights in us, beautifully woven into the, the robes and the garments of the priest. And I wonder if you picked it up. On the ephod and on the breastplate. Do you remember the, the jewels that were sewn in? So two stones on the ephod and 12 stones sewn into the breastplate. And on the two stones are inscribed the 12 tribes of Israel. And on each of the 12 precious gems that are, are on the breastplate are each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as the priest comes into the presence of God, he comes in with these jewels representing God's people and those jewels were spectacular those jewels were beautiful those jewels would have had us delight in and that's the point because that's how God sees us as his precious ones and who he delights in those precious crystals on the priest are a picture of how God sees us in his presence right now. Precious, valuable, of great worth and dignity. Can I just say, if there is a voice telling you that is not who you are, tell that voice to shut its mouth and listen to the voice who you need to listen to. Your Father in heaven who says, I love you and I delight in you and you are valuable. And you're beautiful. And you have dignity. And you have worth. That is who you are, child of God. Hear that and rest. I want us to leave this place in a place of rest, but also in a place of repentance. Here's the last implication. Jesus' death on a cross has made his people holy, which means we are growing in our holiness. We are made perfect in Jesus, but there's also a sense in which this life that we're living now is a journey of becoming who we are. We're becoming the perfection that the Father sees in his Son. That's what sanctification means. It means we're growing in our holiness. So the penalty of our sins has been removed, but we, we still battle against sin. Like We know that, right? We felt that this week. Some of us have felt that today. Maybe in the last hour, we felt the battle that rages against sin in our own lives. So, brothers and sisters, with the help of God, with hearts assured that our sins have been forgiven, let's spend this week determined to live a life of holiness. What does that look like? Well, brothers and sisters, some of you, now all of us, before we come to this table, we need to, we need to put certain sins to death. That's what it looks like. We need to see the delight that the Father has over us 
And out of love, not out of duty, not because we have to, not because we have to earn forgiveness or earn the favour of our Father, out of love, ask the Holy Spirit to shine the light of Christ onto the darkness of our hearts, to point out the specific sins that we are engaged in and to put those to death.